0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. What is the cause of the church's sufferings and difficulties? Is it totalitarian regimes? Fascist dictators? Discriminatory legal systems? Revelation 12, which we looked at last time, gives us a, a deeper analysis of the perennial difficulties of the church. And we saw there that the primary problem the church faces in every generation is the rage of Satan. Behind, above, and underneath all flesh and blood evil are spiritual forces. We are locked in a cosmic battle that is profoundly spiritual. This is the teaching of Revelation 12. Chapter 13, which is our text for today, provides us with a little bit more detail about how Satan wages this war. He operates commonly through two agents. It's through these two agents that he exercises his opposition to God's people. These two beasts, the beast from the sea and beast from the land, are the dragon's henchmen and the means by which he inflicts his rage on Christians today. Now, I recognize that talking about The Antichrist on Valentine's Day is filled with dark irony. I assure you I did not plan it that way. Though we all know Valentine's Day is an elaborate conspiracy generated by the candy and greeting card companies of the world to soak us dry. (laughs) Revelation 13, let me read. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is going to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So we're going to look at today. A dragon Satan exercises his opposition, his rage against the church through two henchmen. The authority of government and its leaders, the deception of false religion, those are our two henchmen, And we're going to look at what this has to say about how we find our way through it. First, the authority of government and its leaders. The first satanic agent is the beast from the sea. And we will see momentarily that this represents the state, government, its leaders. Why is this beast portrayed as coming from the sea? Well, for the Jewish people, a landlocked people, the sea was always agitated. It was restless. It was stirred up. It was a place of chaos and instability. So it makes perfect sense a beast would come from it. And it makes perfect sense this beast would bring with it chaos and instability. And it would do so with authority, as the ten horns and seven heads implies. Now look at verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. This is actually an echo of Daniel 7, where four beasts are mentioned and refer to four successive kingdoms to come from Daniel's standpoint. The four are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. This beast, the beast of the sea, likely refers to Rome just as the fourth beast of Daniel's dream. And notice this empire of Rome is given its power and authority by the dragon, whom Revelation 12 identifies as Satan. Yes, the Roman Empire was one of Satan's henchmen. Now, does it refer exclusively to Rome in the first century? No. Skip down to verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. We've looked at this before, haven't we? The fact the beast exercised authority for 42 months, that is for the entirety of the church age, shows that this beast refers to every manifestation of evil in any government throughout history and also to the final conflict to come at the end. To further establish this, look at verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So there's a, there's a fatal wound, but it's healed. Think about the contradiction of that statement. How can a fatal wound heal? So if it's depicting manifestations of evil in governments throughout history, it's a way of saying Rome will one day fall... But another evil regime will rise to take its place. There will be this waxing and waning, this back and forth until the end. So the beast throughout human history recurs. He recurs when a Hitler erupts or a Stalin erupts or a Pope Innocent III or an Idi Amin erupts. From a theological perspective, what you see is this concretizing in history of the power of Satan himself. Notice also from verse 4, people are constantly surprised at the survivability of raw evil. Isn't that what many, many well-intentioned, well-meaning people have said under various totalitarian regimes? What have they said? You just can't fight the state. It's too powerful. Well, you could fight it the way Bonhoeffer did, but he paid for it with his life. So from the beginning of history, pagan and immoral states have sometimes risen in violent evil against God's people. Those pagan states eventually receive a mighty death blow, a blow from God, but the evil returns. Think about it. Pharaoh in Egypt rises and falls. Mighty Assyria. Have you met any Assyrians recently? Well, the empire was wiped out. The only thing that remains today are a couple of tiny little villages. Babylon, Rome, Hitler. And will America survive if it squeezes God to the periphery? Now, the question may be raised whether this beast from the sea should be equated with the Antichrist. The answer is yes, if the Antichrist is biblically understood. The term Antichrist is used only in the epistles of John, never in Revelation. And the Apostle John spoke of those who oppose the revelation of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Notice that even in John's day, he was living in the last hour. We are no different. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So this spirit is exemplified in the beast from the sea, which was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse four, people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Notice the wonder people give to this government and its leaders. They seem to be intoxicated with its stature. They follow it. This verse almost has the language of discipleship. They want to be insiders to it. This is the language of worship. It's a notable fact of history that the most despicable tyrants have often been extremely popular and have elicited virtual worship from their people. Adolf Hitler set himself up as a messiah for the Aryan race and was fanatically revered by many of the German people, even as their cities were being reduced to rubble by the Allied forces. The relentless conqueror Napoleon Bonaparte continues to be adored by the French, despite having bled their country dry in ruinous wars. Steve Wilmshurst puts it this way he says dictators create their own personal mythology or have others do it for them most of all they demand people's unquestioning and unconditional submission something only god has the right to do this beast is seen when government takes the place of god in our lives Vern Poythress notes that in democratic countries like our own, Satan wants people to look to the state as if it were a Messiah. When the government is set forth as the remedy for all ills, economic, social, medical, moral, even spiritual, then the idolatry of the state usurps the place reserved for God alone. Whenever we sing the secular doxology, praise the state from whom all blessings flow, we are serving the beast. Verse 5 tells us, proud words and blasphemies are the tools of the trade for this beast. At one level, this language of blasphemy is tied to the tendency of Roman emperors to take divine names on themselves, which inevitably would be a great offense to genuine believers. Augustus was proclaimed divus, one like the gods. Nero was called savior of the world on his coins. The Roman Senate from Augustus on regularly declared the deceased emperors to be divine. Domitian, whom I think is on the throne in John's day as he writes Revelation, was addressed in Latin as Dominus e Deus Nosta, our Lord and God. How would Christians have viewed that? But the larger issue is that the vulgar blasphemy of the Roman emperors and what they do What does it mean to blaspheme God? What does it mean to blaspheme God? The word itself means to slander. To slander his name, his dwelling place. And notice those who live in heaven, believers. To slander his name isn't mere profanity, but it would include that. God's name represents all that he is as represented by his name. It means anything you can do to make a joke about God or to cut him down to size or to make him just like you or to make him evil or to laugh at him, anything that demeans him or depreciates him, to make him just a loving, fuddy-duddy old grandfather, to make him a horrific hater of people. That is to slander God because it's presenting a God other than the God who is there. Part of Satan's strategy to wage war against the church involves co-opting government, turning it into a beast that opposes the church and Christians. This is Satan's first henchman. The second henchman is the deception of false religion. And we see that in the second beast, verses 11 through 18. So we've got a dragon, okay? We've got a beast from the sea, and now we've got a beast from the land. They're all in cahoots with one another. They're kind of a parody of the triune God, a satanic trinity, if you will. Why this contrast with a beast both from the sea and the land? Now, we've already seen for landlubbers like Jews, the sea was symbolic for chaos and restlessness and upheaval. So a beast coming out of the sea carries with it that kind of overtone. But unless you live in California, the land normally signifies stability. The beast here comes in a way that does not seem to threaten. That's the very nature of stability. The land is supposed to be stable. Land is the platform for stability, which is the very foundation for all deception. In other words, this is peculiarly appropriate symbolism when the chief function of the second beast is to deceive. This beast is the satanic inspired outworking of deception that takes place in concrete historical experiences through means that appear innocuous. There's an additional minute detail in verse 11 that further reveals the deceptive tactics of this beast. It has the appearance of a lamb who else does in revelation Jesus we could quickly think of Jesus' words in Matthew 7:15 watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves now when i speak of false religion and deception as the primary tactic I think we should lump into that any ideology that supports idolatry. Okay, that's important. Any ideology that supports idolatry. So it's not just Islam or Buddhism. It's the hundreds of subtle ideologies that infest the way Americans see the world, themselves, and God. So on the one hand, this false religion is the communism of the Soviet Union with its spectacular parades through Red Square. It's the party card for the privileged. This false religion is Nazism with its Nuremberg rallies and its Hitler youth. It's the statues of Saddam Hussein, which infested Iraq. It's the wall posters of Chairman Mao. But we could add to this the biased media in America that covers up the horrors of abortion, ceaselessly promotes sexual immorality, and misses no opportunity to heap scorn on Bible believing Christians. This false prophet combats the gospel with subtle philosophies and false religions that promote the cause of the beast and the dragon. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So the beast of the land represents pastors, college professors, politicians, songwriters, media pundits who cultivate a seductive message in order to gain a hearing for an ultimately satanic, idolatrous message. Notice too, this beast is a wonder worker in verses 13 and 14. New Testament scholar Craig Keener cites ancient church sources who tell of moving statues and fireball explosions and pagan magicians who could make idols appear to speak. Greg Beal similarly writes that various pseudo-magical tricks, including ventriloquism, false lightning, and other such phenomena were used effectively in the temples in John's day. Now, it's not just what these people accomplished that's important to notice. It's what that accomplishment did to how the public viewed them. Today, instead of cheap magic tricks, the advances of science and technology and the achievements of government are hailed as proof of the false gospel of secular humanism. Again, Vern Poitras writes, he says, technology becomes the worker of miraculous signs, Worship the power of the beast, the power of technocratic state organization, the power of the experts, because technology can work wonders like no one else. In our immediate cultural context, friends, let's be wary of the so-called expert. There is an idolatry of science in the expert that has been running amok through the world over the past year. Let's not be deceived by that. By the way, it makes perfect sense why Revelation 13 would end with this calls for wisdom. I should say so. So these two beasts are in cahoots with one another such that Christians are killed because of their satanic cooperation. Now listen, the point here is not that all Christians are slain under the influence of the second beast. That's not the point. Listen carefully. The point is that worshipers of false religions will often display their zeal with violence against true religion. Let me say that again. Worshipers of false religions will often display their zeal with violence against true believers. Now, we come to this Mark of the Beast stuff. I thought about skipping it, but then I thought it'd be all kinds of tomatoes and vegetables to be thrown at me if I did that. Mark of the Beast. Popular end times books describe the Mark of the Beast as something yet to appear, often a technology to implant a computer chip that will control all commerce. There are abundant reasons to believe, however, that John is referring to a phenomenon common to his own age. The Greek word used for mark is the term used for the emperor's seal on official documents. In this light, the mark of the beast alludes to the state's political and economic stamp of approval given only to those who go along with its demands. In the Roman world, slaves were sometimes tattooed on the forehead to mark their ownership. Similarly, the beast's mark claims those who worship him as his property. Soldiers received marks on the hand to show their allegiance to a certain general. Likewise, the mark of the beast shows one's devotion as a follower. Now, these examples show that the mark of the beast is not something that one accidentally receives. I know Christians have been paranoid over the decades about that. This is not something one accidentally receives. Primarily, it is a formal acceptance of total allegiance to a person or earthly entity, rendering a devotion that only God deserves to receive. In America today, business people may sell their souls to the company out of lust for success. Some people fail to profess faith in Christ because of loyalty to family expectations. Some youths wear the tattoos of a street gang or a rock group that they religiously follow, swearing heart and soul to the gang or the band or the subculture. In John's day, the mark of the beast provided another way to persecute believers. We see that in verse 17. One of the churches John writes Revelation to is in the city of Pergamum. It was well attested Christians could not hold down well-paying jobs there because trade guilds required participation in the idol worship and cultic prostitution. Christian businesses today may be closed down for refusing to fund abortion through their insurance. Christian military officers may forfeit promotion because they refuse to hide their faith. The point is that the land beast paints Christians as being disloyal to the governing regime because of their higher allegiance to Christ. As a result, Christians are forced to the periphery of public life, unable to be elected to office or operate small businesses. Now, before I turn to some application here, I need to say something about 666. This is another one I can't skip. Most commentators suppose that 666 is a coded reference using an ancient practice known as gematria. Hebrew and Greek did not have numbers, so they assigned numeric values to letters. Okay. So the idea is that John is enabling us to identify the Antichrist or the first beast because of the letters of the name in Greek add up to 666. This is where it gets cute and fun. Using this in similar systems, Christians in recent years have argued for numerous people fulfilling the 666 criteria. Ronald Wilson Reagan, Antichrist. Six letters in each of his name. American statesman Henry Kissinger was long considered anti-Christ candidate, not only because of his labors for a secular world peace, but also because the letters of his last name add up to 666 in the Greek system. Now, you see the problem? I hope you see the problem. The problem is that by this approach, there's virtually no limit to anti-Christ candidates. One commentator fancifully made a case for Barney, the children's television figure, since the words cute purple dinosaur yield the calculation 666. A better approach to unpacking this number is to understand the symbolism of six. We've encountered seven in Revelation as a number of completion and perfection. Six falls short of this number. It's therefore imperfect, incomplete, defective. It could be as simple as this. Now, it turns out also that the word beast in Greek calculates to 666. Interestingly, the name Jesus calculates to 888. If this was at least part of John's message, the meaning is pretty clear. Whereas Jesus possesses a superabundance of perfection, 7 plus 1, the beast falls short as a defective imposter, 7 minus 1. Now, let's take a step back. Look at the forest for a moment. We're engaged in a cosmic war that's profoundly spiritual. The dragon, Satan, exercises his rage against the church through two henchmen, government, its leaders, false religion. Did you notice how these two beasts work? What their objective is? Their objective is to create fear and to deceive. This is how they operate. They're after fear. Beast from the sea is kind of brute in your face threats, coercion, trying to generate fear in God's people. Beast from the land is deceptive. We may not know it's a beast upon first sight or first hearing. Sneaky, subtle. Fear and deception. Now what's our way through it? Let me mention a few things. First, view government with biblical appropriateness. View government with biblical appropriateness. This is a tricky tension. To maintain. On the one hand, it is God who has ordained the governing authorities. When Jesus is before Pilate, what did Jesus say? You would have no authority if it wasn't given to you by my father. Or the apostle Paul writing in Romans, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. When government behaves in ways that honor the Lord, let's be grateful for it. Government is not an independent entity operating in autonomy separated from God himself. In fact, it's good for us to play our part in it. We should contribute to government behaving in ways that reflect the good as God has defined it. We need more Christians running for public office. We need more Christians serving as judges and lawyers who will incarnate their biblical worldview in these influential places of leadership. Christians are not meant to form monasteries squirreled away in nondescript enclaves. We need to maintain a faithful presence in society and government. But we should always maintain an appropriate wariness of human government because God is telling us some governments will be beasts. In fact, I would add to that saying that totalitarianism, which demands conformity, is endemic to government because it's endemic to sinful nature. There's a part of every human heart that demands to be king and the world to serve as our subjects. Put sinful nature into public office and there will always be a drift towards demanding conformity. Constitutions and laws only work if people are willing to submit to that authority. The human heart doesn't drift towards submitting to anything. Totalitarianism is endemic to government. And if you don't think that that could ever happen here in the United States, we need to think again. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose writings have been influential in my thinking about these things, writes, he says, there always is this fallacious belief. The belief is it would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. And he says, all the evil in the world, all the evil in the world can happen anywhere. Anywhere. So we need to view government with biblical appropriateness. God has ordained its place in the world. He put leaders in their roles and there should be respect and appropriate submission to that. But governments and their leaders can be beasts. Second, always prepare for suffering every day. Prepare for suffering The Book of Revelation as a whole repeatedly works to shape our expectation of suffering. We ought not never ever be shocked by it. As we hold to our profession of faith and we live out our faith in visible, practical, everyday ways, we will be opposed. Some of us may be jailed, others killed. Our suffering may begin economically like what was transpiring in Pergamum in Revelation. We may be excluded, unfairly taxed, unjustly paid, deliberately overlooked for that job. But our victory will not be won by dodging these things, but by patient endurance through these things. Always prepare for suffering. Suffering. Third, constantly tune your powers of biblical discernment. Remember, Satan doesn't just use brute force or easily spotted discrimination. He works through deception as well. Can you spot the counterfeit teaching? The worldview or the ideology circulating out there, can you parse it out with a biblical critique the Berean Christians in Acts 17 would be proud of. The only way to do this is through constant reading and immersion in the scriptures. There's just no shortcut. There's no shortcut to tuned powers of discernment other than prolonged exposure to the truths of God's word. All four years of college, I was a bank teller and, um, In my first couple of weeks of training, my supervisor, our head teller, at one point uh, took me to the training room, set some cash in front of me, and she said, now find a counterfeit. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Uh, Some of the counterfeit stuff out there is really impressive. There's some really bad stuff, uh, but there's some really good, if I can use that word, to describe counterfeit currency, um, counterfeit bills. But she said, she said, don't worry about it. I'm not going to have you study this stuff. The only way you're going to get good at, at detecting counterfeit currency is by constant use of the real thing. She says, you're going to handle so much cash, and 99.9999% of it is legit. You're going to handle so much cash that your fingers and your eyes, you're going to start to sense things when things aren't right. And she was right. I mean it's constant cash, constant cash handling. Uh, what we do on Sunday mornings is our cash handling. Okay? We, we, what we do on Sunday mornings is, is immersion in the real thing. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's what Sunday morning's for. It's immersion in the real thing. And my hope and my prayer is that as you go out and you encounter counterfeits, you've handled the real thing so much you're able to to spot it, You're able to detect it. However, there is a place for us as a church to spend time looking at counterfeits. And we're going to be doing that in the months to come, not on Sunday mornings. In the weeks to come, I'm going to be offering a seminar entitled Understanding the Times. Understanding the Times. I'm going to be tracing in that talk two pathologies that have come to dominate American culture. You know all the buzzwords, LGBTQ+, racial injustice, critical theory, oppression, victimhood, identity politics, cancel culture, woke, this is me, this is who I am, you do you, right? All the buzzwords. Uh, We're going to get underneath these labels, down into the roots, into the dirt, and we're going to trace some of this. And my objective, my hope is to help you see and spot the counterfeit. For now, there are two dates, two possible dates you could be a part of. One is Saturday, March 27th from 9 a.m. to noon. The other one is Saturday, April 17th, 9 a.m. to noon. Because our Children's Ministries is awesome, they have extended childcare for fifth grade and under for the April 17th date. Space is limited. Registration is required. I think it's on the screen. And registration will open today at noon. If need be, I'll add further offerings of this down the road. We're in a place as a church where we really need to be exercising some discernment in our times. And I'm going to do my best to help you with that. There's a true story out there about one man who became wise to the false religion of the land beast. His name was Boris Kornfeld. He was a doctor who worked in a labor camp operated by the Soviet Union. A Christian had encountered him, had told him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Kornfeld found himself convicted of his sin, especially his hatred for the guards and for the way that he himself had collaborated in in the evil, and he longed for the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Well, when the Christian was transferred, Kornfeld relented under God's pressure and turned to Jesus in faith. For some time after that, he told no one, yet his new allegiance required him to refuse to engage in corruption and began doing what he could to protect the weak and the afflicted in the camp. One night, Kornfeld was helping a patient who was recovering from a painful cancer operation. He decided that he would no longer be kept silent by fear of the communist authorities. So the words just came pouring out of his mouth, and he told his story to this patient about coming to faith in Christ and how God's grace had changed him. And after bearing this testimony and putting the patient to sleep for the night, Kornfeld went to his nearby room. While he slept, he was attacked. His skull was crushed by a hammer blow, and he died for refusing to serve the beast any longer. Did his witness matter? Was his commitment to Christ worth losing his life? The answer is given by the patient who heard his last words. His name? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Who later wrote, Kornfeld's prophetic words were his last words on earth. And directed to me, they lay upon me as an inheritance. Many have argued, and I think rightly, the writings of Solzhenitsyn made significant contributions to the fall of communism in the Soviet Union. See, the wisdom is not found in how to strike back at the beast with his own weapons. But how to boldly declare the gospel message of Christ. The wisdom is is not how to evade the beast's tyranny, but how to persevere in Christian courage and commitment. We can, Christian, live without fear of his assault. You can. Even his hammer blows can do nothing but send you into the loving arms of the victorious Christ. Last, trust the one controlling the unfolding story. 24 times in Revelation, the word edothay occurs. It's the word... It was given. It was given to this. It was given to that. And in each case, it is God who is doing the giving. It's called a divine passive. God gives to the dragon his authority. God gives to such and such to do this. It is God who gives. There isn't a single character in Revelation that can move one inch unless God says they can. And it doesn't come out there in black and white and say it. All you get is this phrase that appears out of nowhere. It was given. It doesn't say, and then God gave to, and then the Lord gave to, and then God gave to. It's, it's brilliant because isn't that life? As we scour the events of our world, it doesn't appear on the surface as though God is the one ruling and reigning. But He is. He is. Underneath it, behind it, above it, it is God who says, You can do this, but not that. You can go this far, but no further. So do you see what that means? If God and the lamb are on the throne and have already won, the fight's been rigged. And it's been rigged in your favor, Christian. So don't run from those threats. Press into them. Because you belong to the one who's rigged the fight. If you're a new creation in Christ... You can't lose. You can't lose. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the greatest threats we face. Our fear and deception. Help us to spot those things in our own lives. Help us to be able to spot the attempts to create that in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with courage as we face them, wisdom, as we face them, to discern it out, to spot it. Through it all, Lord, I pray that you would press upon our hearts the assurance of victory. The fight's been rigged. It's been rigged. And the very worst thing, the dragon and his henchmen can do is to send us into the loving arms of our victorious Christ. If that's the worst, then there's much to live for. Encourage our hearts with these truths this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.